verse 8, which is headed to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. 
I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, good morning from uh, me. Uh, for those who are visitors uh, or who don't know, I'm uh, the Reverend Bob Marsden. I'm the Senior Minister here at Trinity. Can I add my very warm welcome to you this morning if you are visiting us? Um, Please, would you have your Bibles open at page 1234, very easy to remember, page 1234, as we look at Revelation 2 together. And let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we've already heard the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're to love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. Father, please help us to do that now by your Spirit. Father, conscious that there are very challenging things in what we uh, read and study this morning from Revelation, but wonderfully encouraging and reassuring things too for those who repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. So please help us now to love you with all our strength, with all our mind, with all our heart, and to respond rightly, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last six years, the Church of England has been involved in a process called living in love and faith. Let me say, in fact, that process has been going on much longer. That is the official name for the consultations that have been taking place. It's been an attempt to reconcile different views about marriage and sexuality. And in February this year, the bishops of the Church of England issued a pastoral letter to the whole of the Church of England. It was what the bishops thought we should think and do about sexuality and about marriage, and in particular about same-sex marriage. At the same time, the bishops of Derby and Repton wrote their own pastoral letter to this diocese. And I quote one line from it. As a diocese, it is our hope 
that whatever our differences on these things or any other issues, note that, it will remain our mutual commitment to travel together with generous faith, courageous hope, and life-giving love. And straight away, we might ask, well, what does it mean to travel together? Or walk together is another favorite phrase that's being used. So whatever our differences, those who lead in the Church of England want us to travel together, to tolerate mutually different views on what is, as we'll see, a very important issue. And we need to ask right up front, because this is right at the heart of our letters this morning, what does the Lord Jesus think of that? Indeed, that is my first heading. You should have an outline on the back of the notice sheet, because my first heading is, Listen carefully to Jesus. Listen carefully to Jesus. On the one hand, we have this letter from the bishops of this diocese and one to the whole of the Church of England. And here, we have three letters from the Lord Jesus to three churches at the end of the first century in Asia Minor. And these letters in Revelation are like spiritual health checks for churches everywhere and all down the ages. It's very interesting where uh, uh, if you read verse 11, whoever has, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a collective, all right, uh, let, if you like, uh, words of the Lord Jesus to churches. And of course, this book of Revelation is for all time until the Lord Jesus returns. There are seven letters, seven the number signifying perfection, completion. Dave's going to be doing a little uh, children's slot on numbers in Revelation, which will be very helpful, and animals and all kinds of things. But this is teaching for all churches everywhere, all the time, until the Lord Jesus returns. And let me say, well, these places were very different. Let me say straight away that if we had been in Ephesus, if we had been in these places, Pergamon and Thyatira, we would have been confronted with extraordinary sexual promiscuity. Culturally, in that way, very similar to us. And sex and religion were often mixed together in the pagan temples. So the first thing I want to say is we listen carefully to Jesus because as we've already heard, we've been reminded, every letter ends with a reminder to listen. Verse 11, verse 17, verse 19, sorry, verse 29, right at the end. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we need to think this morning, what is it that Jesus is saying to us 
through these letters. That'd be a great thing to discuss at the end of the service. What have we heard and what do we need to do? And in every letter, as we've noticed, there is a clear pattern to uh, these letters. The opening phrase says something about Jesus. Uh, in chapter 1, remember, we, that brilliant illustration that the curtain has been pulled back and we've seen that God is on the throne and he shares his throne with his son, the Lord Jesus. And every letter begins with a reminder of who this Jesus is. Look at verse 8. To the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. It's worth listening to the one who has, who holds the keys of death and Hades. He alone can give eternal life. It's worth listening to him, isn't it? Look at verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This Jesus speaks by his spirit through his word. And what he says judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and, of course, brings us wonderful healing and grace when we repent. Look at verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So this Jesus sees everything that goes on in his churches. And we can't hide from him. And feet of burnished bronze imply somebody who is ready to take action, don't they? Somebody who's smart to encourage, to rebuke. So this is the Jesus who walks amongst us now. Jesus, by his Spirit, walks amongst every church in Buxton. So let's listen carefully to Jesus. And let's be ready for the Lord Jesus to examine us. Very easy, actually, in some of the things I say this morning, to say, look at the problem over there. But Jesus says, examine yourselves, Trinity Church. The second thing I want to uh, lay on us is to be courageous, to be courageous, even to death. In the letter to Smyrna, Jesus is entirely positive in what he says to the church. There is no but or yet I have this against you, as in the other churches. Look at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Can I just say here straight away that there is no anti-Semitism here. Jesus the speaker is a Jewish man. John the writer is a Jewish man. And the first Christians in all these churches were Jewish people these words are not powerful Christian people saying horrible things about the Jews. The issue here is about what was legal and what was illegal in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, the Jewish religion was legal. They had an exemption. You did not have to worship the Roman Emperor, acknowledging that Caesar is Lord. 
Christianity grew out of the Jewish religion. It wanted the same freedom, but he wasn't given it. Christianity was an illegal religion, and to follow Jesus meant possible death. So probably the slander that Jesus has in mind here is the slander that Jewish converts experienced as they left the synagogue and met with the church. I mean, something like, those Christians are not following the Jewish religion. You know, they should be locked up. And of course, if you know the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we know that that happens uh, several times where the biggest opposition to the church comes from the synagogue. Now, Jesus knows the threats. Verse 10, do not be afraid about what you, uh, uh, of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Uh, will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I think 10 days is a symbolic number, a definite period of time with a definite end. Jesus says to them and to us, be courageous, be courageous, even to death. Jesus doesn't take the suffering away. But there's a glorious promise, isn't there? I will give you life as your victor's crown. And then he says, right at the end of verse 11, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. There are two deaths in the book of Revelation. The first death is our physical death, the end of our natural lives, which every one of us faces. And the Christians here in Smyrna are told, don't fear your first death. What really matters is the second death. When Jesus returns, all those who are not in his book of life will be judged. And because they've rejected Jesus and his love and grace, they experience the second death. And it is pictured in Revelation as being sent into the lake of fire. There are many places where to be a Christian means to risk death or losing family members or your job or your home. We have somebody here this morning from a country where that is the reality. Now, of course, we're not going to be killed in this country. But Jesus calls us to be courageous in our faith. Can I ask you just to reflect, when was the last time you were courageous in your faith? Do we have a caution and a fear that stops us being faithful? Do we have a fearless trust in Jesus? This attitude could help us this week, couldn't it? It's going to help me. Could I be more courageous this week by speaking about Jesus clearly? Could I invite somebody to a puddings evening 
or the men's breakfast, or to Christianity Explored. Why is it that we're so fearful when the call here is to be courageous, even to death? Then thirdly, don't be compromised. Don't be compromised. Be courageous. Then thirdly, don't be compromised. Don't tolerate false teaching and sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to take Pergamon and Thyatira together because, as you'll see, the situation is similar. And both are commended for good things. Notice the church in Pergamon uh, has been courageous. Look at verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So Antipas has taken that next step, which in Smyrna is commended. He has been courageous even to death. But the challenge here is for them not to be compromised in their faith in a particular area. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, just... Look down to verse 19, so we can see the, do, the good that Thyatira does. This is incredibly striking, isn't it? I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're doing more now than you did at first. So there, you, went, you went to this church, Thyatira. This was a very active church, and they're doing more. But again, they're compromised. Verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So both these churches were allowing and tolerating false teaching that they should have confronted. And they're tolerating the sin that goes with that false teaching. In Pergamon, Jesus says, there are some among you, verse 14. And the implication is, you should do something about it. Now what was this teaching that was endangering the church. Let's just have a th think about that. Verse 14, it was the teaching, Jesus says, of Balaam. Now, back in Numbers, uh, Balaam suggests to King Balak to send all the beautiful young women of Moab into Israel to seduce the young men of Israel. And it works. Uh, they commit sexual immorality with the women, and they end up worshipping the Moabite gods. 
And so Balaam becomes a byword in the rest of the Bible for false teaching, which aims to compromise biblical faith, especially through sexual immorality. Verse 15, likewise you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans were probably saying that something like there's great freedom as Christians. Yes, Jesus has saved us, um, but what you did sexually with uh, your body did not matter. We are free. Then look at verse 20, the problem in Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Jezebel in 1 Kings 16 was the wicked wife of King Ahab. He allowed Queen Jezebel to run the show and she encouraged Israel to engage in Baal worship and that inevitably led into sexual immorality. Pagan religion and sexual immorality go hand in hand. And so there's a Jezebel figure in the church a prophetess, a leader. She claims to speak for God. And the church has challenged this here that they tolerate her. Now, I hope you see the relevance for our current situation. I want to speak a bit more about uh, the Church of England. Uh, the bishops of the Church of England have issued what they would like to happen uh, in terms of living in love of faith. And it is basically a redefinition of the church's teaching on marriage and sexuality. And their proposals come with draft services that are to be used to affirm, celebrate, dedicate and bless same-sex relationships like civil marriage. Indeed, uh, the Bishop of Derby said to Dave and I, when we went to visit her to talk about this um, and to challenge her, that she would use these prayers once approved. Uh, once approved. Uh, the strong implication, of course, is that gay sex is not wrong. Now, let me say that the bishops actually go further. They state that as long as there is faithfulness and commitment in a relationship, it can be blessed and affirmed with prayers. And so that couple can be fully included in the church. Those relationships can be informal, like a civil marriage, or informal in their commitment. They don't say what that faithfulness and commitment is. Though civil marriage is clearly in mind. Now, let me restate Trinity's position. I'm going to do this unashamedly, and it will take a few minutes. Our position is based on the clear teaching of God's Word. This position has been held by the church all down the ages and all over the world since the time of Jesus, except by a minority of people in Western churches in the last 50 years and some other mavericks down the ages. The Lord Jesus clearly teaches that God created sexual difference between male and female, and God created sex 
as a way of uniting a husband and a wife, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And that uniting, called marriage, expressed publicly, is done by God. It is intended to be lifelong. The union is something that nobody should separate. So sexual intimacy, with all its joyful wonder and emotional force, is approved within that God-given framework. That marriage union has the potential to generate children who grow up in stable and secure families, which is good for all of society. Please don't hear me saying that if you are a single mum that you cannot bring up your children well. Of course you can. But the Bible's claim is that human society is better, indeed much better, when sex is reserved for marriage. Sex outside of heterosexual marriage is generally worse for children. Many studies show that, though you won't be told many of them. And sex outside of heterosexual marriage has been worse for women. Look how women are exploited by the sex industry. And worse for men who are enslaved by pornography. Now, at Trinity, all are welcome. We're all sexual sinners of one sort or another. And when we turn to Jesus gloriously, there is total forgiveness of sins and the help of his Holy Spirit to change us. And to follow Jesus faithfully is to keep sex within heterosexual marriage. And anyone who responds to Jesus in that way is fully and equally part of the Christian church. I know that this teaching is painful for those who are same-sex attracted, and we all know people who are same-sex attracted, because, of course, heterosexual couples can repent and be married and resume their sexual relationship. But it's also challenging for the teenager whose friends are all having sex and experimenting and wishes to remain faithful, or those who think that looking at pornography is normal and healthy, or for the widower or widow whose spouse has died, it's hard, the single man or woman who would love to be married, but only to, be a Christi only to a Christian. So can I say everyone at Trinity is welcome. All are encouraged to turn from sin and turn to Christ and to accept his lordship, his yoke, that is easy, and to know his love and grace and forgiveness. Now, I say that because it's important to keep saying that in the current climate, but the focus here is something different, isn't it? The focus here is how the faithful church responds to this false teaching and sexual immorality that is being tolerated in the church at Thyatira, and in Pergamon, they have people in the church who are saying these things. And note that Jesus does not trade off the good things that these churches are doing against the wrong acceptance of false teaching. It's very striking, though, isn't it? The church, for all its good things, 
are in Pergamon allowing there are some among you who hold to this teaching. And at Thyatira, they are tolerating this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. You see, Jesus' focus, of course he wants the false teachers to repent, but he calls the churches that allow and tolerate the false teaching to change. Look at verse 16, repent therefore. You repent, you churches, of allowing that. Now let me say that tolerance in most situations is a wonderful and good thing. Indeed, I would argue that toleration is a major gift that Christianity combined with liberal democracies has given to, indeed, the whole world. We allow people to live in the way that they want. But in the church, to tolerate false teaching, to allow it to go unchallenged, and to associate with those who are openly saying these things, is catastrophic. He says, repent. So that is a profound and uncomfortable challenge for orthodox bishops in the Church of England who think we can walk together. Of course, there's a challenge to liberal revisionist bishops who want to see sexual ethics changed. But the real challenge, it seems to me, from these churches and to us as churches, for you who are orthodox, who think you can keep walking together, traveling together. You see, there are some who say, let's accept the situation and let's just get on with our good deeds. Our church planting, our love our service. Or we won't say anything is wrong because that would mean that we become unpopular with those we're trying to reach. (laughs) Of course, that is catastrophic ultimately because ultimately you end up changing your position as indeed some churches have tragically. You see, Jesus says here that you should not trade off good things against tolerating false teaching and sexual immorality. So the bishops uh, of Derby and Repton write to us that we should travel together, as do the archbishops. But let me say that is to change, I mean that is wrong anyway, but that is to change what the church is. Remember that you keep hearing that we must stay together at all costs. Unity is what matters above truth. But Jesus never teaches that here. In lots of places, in John 17, but here too. There are things we should not tolerate. So Jesus gives a serious warning in verse 16, doesn't he? Just uh, look at this. Repent, therefore. That's the most loving thing to do. And just look at this, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth.
The implication there is that Jesus will come against those who are engaging in this false teaching. It's interesting, sorry, I don't say it's interesting. When the Bishop of Derby told Dave and I in person that she would use these prayers of blessing, I told her to repent, to stop doing it. That was the most loving thing I could do. Because according to this, Jesus is going to come and fight against her. You don't love the person who's in error if you leave them in error on a major issue. The seriousness is also seen in Thyatira, isn't it? Verse 21. So there's been given time for repentance. I've given her time. This woman, Jezebel, who's like Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Now, no doubt some of them actually were literally committing adultery, but of course here I think the allusion is to spiritual adultery. Lord Jesus says that such disloyalty, uh, it's like a broken marriage. It's a spiritual unfaithfulness. You see, again, you see all the time our temptation and the pressure of the world, and of course those in the church, is to downplay these things. I don't think that's what Jesus says. And of course there is a terrible judgment. Verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. I think that probably means her followers. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Uh, it is sobering. should cause us to reflect. What's happened to those churches, these churches? You would struggle to find churches in these places now in modern-day Turkey. To tolerate false teaching among leaders and Jesus will stop the church eventually. So, please pray for us as the minister's council and the church council as we continue to think and plan how we distance ourselves from those who are false teachers. Can I commend to you a very good little article by John Dunnett, uh, writing in Evangelicals Now, called Will There Be a Place for Me in the Church of England? John Dunnett is the General Secretary of the Church of England Evangelical Council and is one of those who's trying to negotiate a clear structural differentiation from those who would lead us down these catastrophic paths so that we don't, those of us who, or those who wish to remain in the Church of England, have nothing to do with those who are false teachers. So please do read that. There are efforts being made. I personally am sceptical about whether there will be clear structural differentiation as this, as he says, they're working towards. We want to be faithful like Thyatira, don't they? Look at verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to a teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. 
hold on to what you have until I come. Be faithful in biblical witness. And then lastly, and wonderfully, endure faithfully trusting Jesus' promise. It's wonderful, isn't it, that there is always a glorious promise for those who repent. Verse 17, to him, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give you that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Spiritual food. And a white stone. Isn't that wonderful? Do you want to receive a white stone from Jesus? Be faithful. What is this white stone? David told me before I um, started this sermon, just before the service, we don't know what it is. And so we don't know what it is. But imagine the Lord Jesus giving you, the Lord Jesus giving you a white stone. Wouldn't you treasure that as something from him? Of course, it's glorious now to come to the Lord's table. To receive not a white stone for those who are faithful and endure faithfully to the end, but now to receive spiritual food, to receive bread and wine, signs, symbols of the Lord's love for penitent sinners, of his grace to penitent sinners, to reassure us of his love and grace and mercy. What promises to end with for those who repent and endure faithfully. Let's pray.